Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Andy Lewis, based in the UK and an ex-scientist who has worked in various scientific and technical roles. He started the Quackometer about 15 years ago, which at first was an AI-like experiment to see if a machine could recognize pages on the internet that contained quackery, differentiating between the uncritical acceptance and skepticism, evidence-based evaluation. Visitors to the site could enter a URL and see what the Quackometer said about the page. All good fun. I welcome Andy Lewis to Savage Minds. I've been following your tweets for some time. What has struck me about your tweets was your approach, which is refreshing in this day and age and almost unheard of, that we approach things rationally, not only scientifically, but putting emotion to the side. And it seems that we're living in an age where, as you've seen all over the social media sphere, the personal is political. And now, as I wrote you in my email yesterday, everything's personal. Like, everything is personal. Yeah. We, can't, we can't discuss anything without bringing it back to me, my best friend, someone I went to school with, my sister. Indeed. I think what's so interesting at the moment is is really how uh, the work I've been doing in blogging for the last 15 years, so much can be tied back to personal identity and how ideas get embedded in your concept of yourself. And so you, people aren't no longer discussing ideas, they're talking about each other in, in, in profound ways. And that's why I think so, so much goes wrong, to be honest. I, I, I'm not sure I fully understand it, but uh, you know whether we're talking about alternative medicine or religious belief or whatever, it's this, it's this way that those ideas become a core part of ourselves, which uh, then creates so many problems when we start discussing them. It, it is fascinating. I was thinking about the medieval period in the run-up, even through the Renaissance, where, of course, there was no personal because the person was mediated by a priest and then God spoke, right? So this yeah, idea, yeah. perhaps we're living in an era where the person has replaced God. Our egos are the new God, and that's the new sacrilegious terrain in which we navigate science, strangely enough. Galileo had to deal with the council of the church. We have to deal with the council of people's feelings. Uh in, indeed, uh, I'm. Uh, I'm sure there's something like that going on. Where, uh, yeah, everything always comes back to, instead of being your uh, the church, as you say, yourself. And um, as soon as you believe something, for someone to to question that, you're questioning. Well, I so, so often said online, their very existence, which is a bizarre phrase, but uh, this seems to be the barrier that uh, seems to be erected around so many ideas at the moment. And um, that, that, is, that is incredible. I, I find it quite incredible, but, but there we go. Could you tell our listeners how you came to form the Quackometer? Yeah, so for, for people who, uh, for the majority of the world who don't ever read it, um, uh, I started writing about 15 years ago. Um, I'd, I'd always been interested in skeptical type things and perhaps we can talk about how we came to that earlier. But um, I, was, I was working in Helsinki at the time and it was 
minus 25 outside and uh, nothing to do but drink licorice vodka. And uh, I, I just started, um, I was reading people like Ben Goldacre at the time, uh, and um, I thought, this is interesting. And um, what, what the quackometer originally was, was actually a, a little bit of an experiment into uh, machine learning, if you like. Whereas I thought so much of the writing online about alternative medicine it uses the same sort of phrases and words, and it's pretty easy to spot. You know, your your red flags go up, your quack your quackometer goes off, if you like, when reading a lot of things. And I wondered if a machine could actually do it. So I wrote a little bit of a, uh, a software script on, on a website that someone could enter their a URL of a website in, and it would come back and tell you how quacky it was, if you like. It was a bit of a joke, to be honest. Um, uh, and it seemed to work fairly well and caused a lot of um, laughter and annoyance, as you can imagine, on equal equal measure. And, and so I just started writing about not just not so much alternative medicine per se, but how, how it impacts our society and how we think about it. And um, and, and then that started getting me into a, a lot of trouble. <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, 15 years later, here I am surviving just about. What kind of trouble did you get yourself into initially? As we said, people get upset when you write about these things, you know, that so I started writing about homeopathy as everyone did back then. And um, I think what's interesting about homeopathy, it's not just another form of medical treatment, even an unconventional form of medical treatment. It's, um, it, it's not like you might, it, you, you're a homeopath, it's part of your identity, okay, if you're a homeopath, it's not just a mode of treatment. Uh, it's, a, it's an ideology, a religion as well, if you like, that and people who are homeopaths uh, see themselves first and foremost as that. So it's not like a doctor who might give you paracetamol. You're not a paracetamolist. It's uh, if, if the evidence proved that paracetamol didn't work for something, you'd hope most doctors would would not would not give it. But with homeopaths, it's it's deep within their soul. So when you start criticising it, they get upset and and want to do something about it. So I got sued. Well, I got threatened to be sued by the Society of Homeopaths in the UK which is an organization that looks after um, uh, the well, they, they give the impression that they're a regulator. And this is basically what I said. They, they give the impression to the public that they look like a regulator and a professional body, but they're not. It's a, it's a fig leaf over uh, cult-like practices. And what they were doing, their members were out in East Africa using homeopathy, which is, which is sugar pills, okay, all the material in it has been diluted away. And they've been giving these sugar pills to people with malaria and HIV. And I basically said this will kill them, okay? Uh, if, if there are people there who are relying on these people who wear their white coats and present themselves as if they are medics and doctors, and all they're getting is sugar pills, then they will die. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, so the Society of Homeopaths decided to threaten me and my, my web hosts and so on. And I uh, got into the papers a bit and uh, they backed down. And I th it's just been interesting then for the next 10 years to watch their journey to try and make themselves respectable, you know, look like a proper regulator. And uh, that's all collapsed in a heap, even in the last few months, essentially, where uh, all recognition by the government as a regulator has now been removed. But they're nonetheless i'm sure still trying to treat people in africa with sugar pills so in that sense it's been a, a bit of a failure <laughs> but uh yeah so um yeah and i get threatened to be sued for libel fairly regularly over the past 15 years and once quite seriously uh where i actually ended up in court which is an, another story uh but in in 
in between, I was quite involved in libel reform. Uh, what was quite obvious to me was libel was um, the massive chilling effect on public debate. Okay, it's very easy for someone to start proceedings or threaten you. And um, in the UK, it's very friendly to the, the, the claimant. So you, you pretty much have no choice but to back down usually because the costs of defending can quickly run up into hundreds of thousands of pounds, which you know, most of us don't have. So um, someone, with a, someone who's either got deep pot pockets or an idiot can, um, can threaten to sue you and it, it's a very good way of shutting you up. And so I, I got involved in trying to reform the law there. Were you successful? <laughs> we did change the law, yeah. We did change the law, absolutely. And what is the law now? Well, so what happened? Uh, interesting. So there was a number of things, and this was primarily through the efforts of Simon Singh, the writer. Um, the, 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 um, the, the things that were problems were, A, uh, uh, the defences to you uh, when you're threatened with libel were, were pretty... Not were not effective really. There, there needed to be more defences for justification, so that um, you know you could justify what you said on you know an honest opinion, basically that what you wrote was your was what you genuinely felt, uh, and, and that ought to be um, a defence. And, and so the, the law did move in that direction um, explicitly. There's other things as well, like raising the barrier to to initiate proceedings. Um, uh, that the, the law should have um, uh, said that there needs to be a significant loss to someone before they try and restore their, their reputation. It, sh it shouldn't just be the, the banter online, if you like, that we, we all engage in with one way or another. There has to be some significant, you know, primarily financial loss involved in what you've said. So if a newspaper, you know, tries to destroy you by telling, you know, lies about you being a paedophile or something you know you'll never work again and so you ought to be able to seek redress for that if it's a lie um <clears throat> but if it's just the usual banter online then the costs of hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, are clearly uh ridiculous so we tried to address the cost issue as well but i don't that was less successful uh that's a very difficult problem um so the law was changed whether it was effective or not again <laughs> like so much it's uh, pretty ambiguous the law was changing uh, anyway through case law so that better defenses were available so in, in some ways an actual law change wasn't needed there and, and the attempts of the law to try and raise a threshold for action were not completely successful in that there was a a case a few years ago with Katie Hopkins and Jack Monroe I don't know oh, if yes. you remember. I remember yeah. that yeah. yeah she lost uh, though uh, Katie Hopkins um lost absolutely um and I was very conflicted about this because this looked to me like the sort of case that really should this have really gone to trial, you know, um, it was online banter and it's pretty nasty stuff, but you know, really. And so although I wasn't rooting for Katie, um, she shared the same barrister actually as I did when I went to trial later on, uh, but um uh, although I wasn't rooting for her because, uh, well, anyway, we won't go there. Um, she lost. Uh, and so the law wasn't effective there of saying, did Jack Hawkins really lose significant financial loss here? You know, what was really going on? And, uh, you know, I wasn't party to the trial, obviously, so may maybe um, uh, that was justified. But it looked to me like the sort of thing I thought, this is hundreds of thousands of pounds at stake here for a few tweets um is that proportionate uh, maybe in some cases it is 
Uh, but I thought most of the time, you know, come on, let's let's uh, you know just put all things into perspective here. So yeah, the LIBOR reform, some successes, some not. Uh, then ironically, I was probably the um, the last people to be uh, sued for libel under the old law <laughs> when I was working on Steiner education and some people who were involved in Steiner education didn't like what I was saying. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the Steiner scandal? Yes, of course. Yeah, um, it's a fascinating subject. And I, I think I got labeled as a bit of conspiracy theorist for a lot of the time while working about this. But it, I'd, I'd always come across Rudolf Steiner, as you said, because he... In alternative medicine, he had some pretty strange views of things like mistletoe could cure cancer and so on. And he kept cropping up in, in, in areas like this. And um, then uh, when the Conservative uh, uh, coalition uh, government formed, you know, what was it, 10 years ago, they wanted to introduce uh, this concept of free school where pretty much anyone could get open a school and get state funding. So the Steiner movement in the UK, which... Uh, uh, runs about th ran about 30 schools um, some of them wanted to convert to being publicly funded and there was one near me in Somerset based in a place called Bruton and um, some local people started lobbying for uh, uh, Michael Gove to um, to convert it to uh, a, a Steiner school in Froome. Now the people lobbying were um, uh, uh, a woman called Emma Craigie uh, who was very involved in the school, and she has a brother called Jacob Rees-Mogg. So for those of you not in the UK, he's, he's a pretty prominent right-wing politician. Um, and his, his, uh, their sister as well, Annunciata Rees-Mogg, uh, the three of them and Michael Gove were all meeting up together, and eventually um, the public money was put into Steiner School. So, so, so what is a Steiner School? Well, Steiner Schools were set up by uh, Rudolf Steiner back in the 20s, uh, 100 years ago. Uh, Rudolf Steiner was essentially a mystic. He was a clairvoyant uh, and um, part of the theosophy movement of Madame Blavatsky and all that sort of crowd who were trying to form a sort of unified religion of Eastern and Western mysticism, essentially agnostic Christianity and Hinduism and all these sorts of things. Um, but um, a lot of the theosophists thought that um, uh, the reincarnation of Christ was coming in the form of an Indian child and, and Steiner was having none of this, uh, that uh, it was impossible for Christ to come back as a lowly Indian child. So he set up his own Germanic uh, version of this called Anthroposophy, which um, took on a lot of the ideas. And the principal idea is that we are reincarnated through a series of lives. Uh, and uh, we progress through spiritual maturity. And we can tell how spiritually mature we are by the colour of our skin. Um, and uh, if you're good and you have good karma, eventually you'll come back as a German. Uh, so it's, it's pretty nasty stuff. And uh, as you can imagine, at that time, the 20s and 30s in Germany, it resonated uh, with a lot of the high command uh, as, as they became in the Nazi party. And in fact, in concentration camps, they became anthroposophical biodynamic um, gardens with slave labor running them. So pretty nasty stuff. Um, what happened though, was a lot of businesses uh, have come out of anthroposophy. Um, so the schools are one thing, Waldorf Steiner schools are uh, essentially anthroposophical schools. There are banks, there's a bank called Triodos based in the Netherlands. 
there's Demeter, which is um, the biodynamic farming. You buy all your wine that's biodynamic. It's anthroposophical. And Walida, the cosmetics company and medicine company. So there's, it's big business, hundreds of millions of euros throughout, Euro, throughout Europe. And um, the Steiner schools are there as spiritual midwives to help the children reincarnate into their new souls. So everything they do there has a spiritual meaning. Uh, all the strange rituals and chanting and lesson plans and everything goes back to the, the mystical teachings and the clairvoyant teachings of Rudolf Steiner. But here's the thing, the parents aren't told. The parents aren't told this. And um, uh, that's what was shocking to me, that the state was going to fund all of this. It was essentially a white supremacist, racist, mystical cult, okay, that's in, inculcating children with strange ideas secretly. Um, so I did sound a bit like a conspiracy theorist, but <laughs> uh, I, I talked all over the country about this in, in the Skeptics in a Pubs meeting and had a lot of anthroposophists come along and it really struck home to me. As you said, people swear blindly by it. There was one woman in the audience uh, near Brighton, uh, I think it was in Luz, where uh, there's a big concentration of uh, Steinerists. And she said at the end of the talk, I've been very disappointed in your talk. Um, uh, Rudolf Steiner's done my family nothing but good, okay, that um, my father was an anthroposophical poet and my mother taught in the schools and so on, and our family thrived on this, apart from my sister who died because she believed in homeopathy, okay, and I thought, well, there we go, that's in a nutshell, okay, that's, that's a cult, okay, and uh, that, that staggered me that the government was going to be funding these sort of places. Just to take a back step for a second, I didn't enter with this because I figured, you know, we get right to the quackometer, but can you tell our listeners, you're an ex-scientist. So what was your field of science when you practiced it? Uh, yeah, I, um, I, uh, I was a nuclear physicist uh, a long time ago. Uh, and then I went into, I did my PhD and then went to industry, you know, various number of companies and uh, moved along through a number of different roles now but so a lot of what the quackometer was just really keeping my my brain ticking over in scientific ideas and engaging with society and so on when you mentioned theosophy i was thinking about a lot of the groups in the united states that formed at the mid to the end of the 19th century that were also interested in non-Christian religious formations. And yeah, I know years yeah. ago when I went out to Boulder to visit my closest friends, that there was a huge center there as well. And theosophy made its way to the States, as did obviously Mormonism. And, you know, there were all yeah. these other constructions that came about. And I was very interested by the fact that Magnus Hirschfeld, who is often credited as being the godfather of queer theory. He was born in the 19th century, but he had a great influence on the studies of sexuality in Germany. He was sort of the Kinsey of Germany. And a lot of his beliefs also stemmed from theosophy. There was a lot of interpretation of Tagore, of looking at non-Western cultures in what someone like Edward Said would have called Orientalism. There was a huge movement of Orientalism at this time to sort yeah. of make, instead of the racism before of dark-skinned people should be slaves, they are meant to build pyramids, they are meant to do our dirty work, it, it shifted, especially amongst the elite. 
And you see this in New York when Tagore came to the United States. It was dark-skinned people are special and they should be revered and their theories and philosophies and religions adopted. This was again by an elite. This was not happening at a grassroots level by the working class, of course, and similar to queer theory today, ironically. And so I'm wondering about how Steiner, I mean, Steiner seems to have been, because my friends in Brighton as well, adopted by people who are not poor because it's not a free school. No, no. It's, it's shocking that any of this gets clout. And yet, just like homeopathy, these quote unquote institutions are funded, they're propped up, and it's almost like there's a circulation of clout. It's almost like monopoly money, if you catch my drift. Yeah. People are in it and they're going to push it and it's going to keep going on. So, so in a lot of the subjects I, I look at, a sort of recurring theme is this this difference between how a group or an organization presents itself to the world and how they present themselves to themselves inside the group. Okay. And um, uh, anthroposophy is a a classic example. That's an onion. The further in you go, the more revealed uh, the beliefs get, but to the outside world, it's a hippie organization, isn't it? It's um, it it represents uh, um, you know, the alternative worldview, almost new age, uh, if, if you like, in, in, in the soft meaning of that term. Um, it, it's about going back to nature, as you say. It's about letting children be children. It's, it's all sorts of things that sound really nice, okay? And for people who are middle class, they can afford these luxury beliefs. They're, they're not trying to pay their bills and so on. They can be, they can go back to nature if they wish, because it doesn't matter. And, and a and one of the recurring themes as well was how successful children are. And for a lot of them, they're successful because it doesn't matter. They're middle class. They're going to get good jobs. OK, that what, what they suffer from is they don't get very rounded educational um, beliefs. You know, they, they, they never get any science uh, qualifications and they go into the arts and so on. And a lot of them go back into the schools and the businesses of Steiner. But these are luxury beliefs, really. Um, uh, and, and so when you criticise them, it sounds like you're criticising, I don't know, baby bunnies or something, you know, <laughs> something soft and fluffy that you really shouldn't be concerned about. No, one's, no harm is being done here. It's just, uh, you know, people organising their own schools and running around in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's wholesome stuff. It's when you peel back the onion. Uh, and persuading people they need to peel back the onion. That's the hard bit, that they need to go below the surface. And when you go below the surface, you start discovering quite extraordinary things, as obviously you have done as well, um, uh, about what the core beliefs are of the people at the heart of the onion. And, um, yeah, so the government was not interested. Uh, My local MP was not interested in the schools. No one was interested, even within... I'd say the skeptic movement, there's very little interest here because it's, you know, there's this mental barrier that you've got to get over, that it's not just um, uh, like a, a version of the Green Party or something like that. It's There's something much more sinister lurking underneath the covers. And, and that's why you sound like a bit like a conspiracy theorist, I think, when you talk about it. The skeptic movement is something that I would have thought to be much more behind questioning this you don't you know part of skepticism is not about being 
right or wrong, it's being able to ask the question. And we're seeing where some skeptics are crumbling. For instance, <laughs> I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but I was quite shocked to see on the weekend, I think it was Sunday or Saturday, Richard Dawkins asked the question about gender identity. And yesterday he already folded to it, apologizing, which is shocking because he never ever once has apologized for his pronouncements about atheism. And so yeah. the very people that we expect to have, again, back to my initial statement about rational thinking is at the heart of, of scientific thought in the sense of we might ourselves have X affliction. We might know someone with X affliction. We might have been a believer in the, the very theory we're, we're speaking out against in X year. But the idea that one, we're supposed to always think the same thing is shocking to me. This is some of the pushback I get. But in March, you told everyone to lock down, I was told last year, when I started to question not the existence of COVID, but the very reckless mitigation efforts in certain countries. And so that was you know, the heart of the issue. But you thought this three months ago, why aren't you thinking it now? And I said, well, because A, I'm not dead, I'm moving and thinking. Two, data has come in. This is not the bubonic plague. Three, I will say this until I die, but why weren't airports shut immediately? Like seriously, folks, yeah, the one yeah, thing yeah. that could have been done now, I use that as a reference, even though this was not at the heart of your quackometer, but I think that people believe that we should simply take a line like, go New York Jets or go Chicago Cubs, yeah. like a, a football yeah. game and stay like that until the day we die, which is cute when it comes to sports. It's not cute when it comes to scientific data. So we see that homeopathy, Steiner have become these cachet cliques within an elite class. There are questions of class there itself as to how this can be circulated. But the minute a poor parent from an estate in East London wants to homeschool a child and refuses to send it to the autistic school because she says, my child doesn't need to go to a special school for autism, she's put under social service investigation, for instance, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so there's certain yeah. elitist narratives here where if you have enough cash and you're of a certain class you won't be investigated for your really nutty beliefs in fact have steiner schools in the uk come under investigation yeah there's lots there julian uh, yeah i was surprised that richard yesterday apologizing for asking people to discuss a question that was that was most extraordinary and very disappointing uh, you know as you say what is what is skepticism if it is not continuous inquiry, essentially, and challenging? Um, uh, we only get to sound and good beliefs in society by continuously reevaluating what we believe. Um, otherwise, error just persists and escalates. Uh, and that's pretty fundamental, really. Uh, and, and that's why I think skepticism in society is, is so important. And, and it's disappointing when that seems to be forgotten. I think, you know, Christopher Hitchens has nailed it on the head many times here about that we should be going out and seeking these disputes always so that there are no monsters lurking under the, the bed that we dare not wish to see. Um, so, yeah, the second bit of the question about the Steiner schools, absolutely. So, yes, uh, investigations did happen. And if anything, you know, my involvement in, in, in this... Uh, uh, what can I say? It turned out well, okay, uh, in that um, 
uh, we were very concerned. There's a number of us criticizing uh, uh, Steiner education. And when you have schools that are secretive, that they present themselves differently from to the outside world than they do inside, this is red flags all over it, safeguarding issues, okay? Uh, and we kept on hearing lots of stories about teachers who uh, were obviously paedophiles within the school system. And when they get caught and found out, they get moved on, okay? So they circulate around the system. And this is a natural environment where that's going to happen. It's like the Catholic Church was, you know, is or was. Um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, people were coming forward with stories, okay? And very difficult to talk about openly, of course, because the libel laws and so on. But eventually, I think Ofsted, the school inspection system, did get wind of it. Now, what the Steiner School had done, the movement in the UK very cleverly, is say to Ofsted several years ago that um, uh, we're a special school. Your, your standard inspection methods uh, will not bring out the true character of a Steiner education, so we need our own inspection system. So they basically engineered to mark their own homework in this area, okay? And Ofsted let them, which was a disgrace. Um, but the complaints from a number of schools started getting so loud that I think eventually Ofsted decided they had to go and have a look for themselves, and um, they shut the school down immediately um, because of what they found. And then this pattern repeated itself. I think they realised that this was systematic within Steiner education, and so they went around pretty much all of them, and then I can't remember how many were immediately shut down. It was about half a dozen, and, and a lot of them were put, you know, on special measures and so on. Uh, and so a lot of those schools didn't ever reopen, okay, uh, which is good, uh, including the local one that I originally campaigned, campaigned against. However, the government in their wisdom decided that they would take the school, you know, the poor kids and so on, in this school that's being shut down now, and put it out to a new academy uh, so that uh, a new academy could take them over. And um, uh, the academy that uh, decided to step in and take over all the failed Steiner schools is essentially a Harry Krishna movement. So um, out of the frying pan. Um, <laughs> the, the irony of it, no lessons learned really at all. But um, there we go. Uh, so, yeah, it did take many years, though, for Ofsted to actually realise that there was was an issue here. And when they went in, I think they had no choice because of the horrors they uncovered. And so why are the Steiner schools continuing to proliferate in other parts of the country? I mean, one gets shut down, but then there seems to be no checks as to how the others are going forward. Um, I, th I think there are. I think Ofsted is on the, seems to be fairly on the ball here, but it's, um, what can I say without being libelous? When you're faced with people who are determined to do something here, this, this is... This is deeply, you know, Steiner said you had to have Steiner schools. So a lot of anthroposophists setting them up. They will present to the outside world, world whatever it takes to convince the authorities that they are reformed and um, uh, worthy of having the license to run a school. And Steiner was explicit to his schools. The first one in Stuttgart, he, he told their teachers, and this is all written down, to deceive the authorities. He told them to lie about the nature of the school, to make it appear as if it is not religious in nature, to not use words like prayer, okay, uh, to essentially deceive inspectors. And we saw lots of evidence for this, that when inspections were due, uh, they'd get rid of all their problem teachers that they knew would cause a problem when the, the inspectors turned up. And, and this is 
goes right back to the writings of Steiner, where he was quite explicit about how to make sure the authorities had no idea what was going on inside the schools. Um, <clears throat> so I am pretty sure there's a lot of that still going on. OK, and we will go through cycles. I think we we will. There's going to be a natural cycle here. Uh, will any ever be brave enough to break the cycle? I don't know. I don't know. But um, that, that's the best we can do at the moment, I think, is just make sure that we keep raising the, uh, the red flags over these institutions. Have you looked into Steiner's claims about biodynamics? Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> uh, biodynamics is the farming technique. Uh, uh, if you've ever drunk wine uh, that's um, biodynamic, it's done under the rules of Rudolf Steiner. It's, uh, it's it, it, essentially, in many ways, the origin of um, organic farming. Okay, So biodynamic is as I've said before, is a bit like organic farming on steroids, but without the steroids, obviously. And um, it, it, so it's, um, it's, it's mystical in its nature. It uses astrology to tell the farmers when to plant or harvest. It uses essentially magical potions as fertilizer. So you would, if you want to keep mice away from your crops, you will catch a few mice, uh, cremate them, and then sprinkle the ashes over the crops, and that will keep the uh, the mice away. The same for slugs. And to fertilize things, you can you can take cow dung and stuff it into a cat skull or a deer skull or something and bury it in the soil for um, six months and then bring it up and then you can create a homeopathic concoction from this that you can sprinkle on your grapevines or whatever. So it is deeply mystical, um, uh, ritualistic, uh, and nonsensical, but it's presented as ecological, okay, which is not, it is not a green thing, it's not, its goal isn't to save the planet, its goal isn't to create sustainability or any of those things, its goal is to uh, serve a religious purpose, to help karma and reincarnation for the, the followers. So um, again, how it's presented to the outside world as ecological is not really what's going on inside, which is deeply occult, essentially. Uh, we have high profile followers in the UK. I think, um, I'm not sure if it's still going on, but you could go for training courses. This at High Grove in Gloucestershire on Prince Charles's estate. Um, uh, and uh, there are many cheesemakers and winemakers and so on around the country that uh, follow this. And you will have undoubtedly eaten some of its products at some point. But uh, fascinating, once again, because how it presents to the world and what's really going on are, are two, two very different things. So what would be the difference really between, let's say something people regularly scoff at like Scientology and this kind of theosophy? That's a very good question. That's one I grappled with for a long time while thinking about this. Okay, is this, you know, we've all seen the documentaries about Scientology and the quite sinister, the quite sinister things going on in there. Um, uh, is is Steiner's movement sinister? Uh, and I still struggle with this question. I think I think people there are well intentioned, and I and I've seen that there's there's not so much the thuggery that you might see in Scientology, but um, nonetheless, I would say a lot of the outcomes are very similar. The, in Scientology, you have the idea of a, a suppressive person, uh, you know, someone who has to be shunned. And I had lots of people writing to me while researching this who had essentially been shunned by the organization. Uh, and a common pattern would be 
a husband and wife, and one of them got wind of what was going on, essentially, and decided that they wanted to withdraw their children from the school. And the other partner, partner was deeply committed. Um, and, and then you saw some of the true nature of what was going on, how closed the communities were, because the community would close ranks around the committed partner and shun the questioning partner. Um, uh, with devastating effect for the families, as, as you can imagine. Um, the, the covering up of abuse, of course, is very sinister. Um, there were attempts to try and intimidate and um, silence critics by threatening them. And uh, one of the Steiner associations did pay for someone to go along online and try to uh, threaten and intimidate people. But that's the only evidence I, I've seen of anything more like the dramatic stuff that comes out of Scientology. So is it the same? It's definitely a revealed cult. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it goes through, um, you go through the onions of layers, much as in Scientology, you move up through the layers to become a thetan. Rudolf Steiner had his own inner, inner levels that you were revealed to you when you were committed enough. Uh, they are called the um, first class members of anthroposophy. And um, they, they were called the blue card members as a, a shorthand, really. These are the people who'd had the inner revelations of Rudolf Steiner um, given to them so they could study. Uh, we know all of this because despite the secrecy, everything ends up online these days. Um, so you can, you can, you can go, go and initiate yourself if you, if you have a rainy afternoon. But again, so yeah, lots and lots of parallels. Um, but uh, uh, as you can probably guess, I'm a little bit hesitant to say it's the same. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I was reading an article the other day about how new age movements that came about in the 70s were fully fomented within pop new age literature in the 1980s. It was estimated in recent years that half of executives in the Denver area had been to these healing powwows of various sorts. So we're yep. talking about this has penetrated institutionally. It's had its own institutional capture where yep. as part of a training weekend, let's say of accountants, you will also get this bonus package of having your spirit cleansed. So a Denver <laughs> psychic named Mary yeah. Summers claimed that she basically does between 500 and 600 spiritual cleanses every year in the area. It's incredible. Like, yeah. so people in Boulder, Colorado, which is considered the new age Athens, yeah. has 80,000 people living in that town, but it has a huge percentage of people dealing in psychic reprogramming, past life regression experts, neuro-linguistic programmers, crystal healers, teachers of planetary ascension, and those who engage in soul merging and channeling and those who commune with the dead. So there's even a new age accountant position who, who is qualified to do rebirthing. Now, this is funny on the one hand, yeah. but these people take it seriously. Again, yeah, yeah. Um, my friends back in Brighton who did not appreciate that I tried to give them an FYI about Steiner, never do that again. 
Why is yeah. it, Andy, that we cannot seem to separate that which touches our lives and then the objective sphere around that? Julian, I, I have no idea. <laughs> it is fascinating. Um, uh, uh, why are our, our beliefs define us rather than just being mere beliefs, if you like? Uh, I, I don't know, but I see this time and time again. I, I think one of the most fascinating areas has been in uh, unexplained illnesses that I've done a little bit of research into as well. Um, things like electrosensitivity were were fascinating. Um, I don't know if you know about this. This is where you believe that um, electrical forces, uh, whether coming from your mains electricity or through emitted through devices like Wi-Fi and mobile, make you ill. Okay, um, and there are lots of people out there who uh, claim that they they're debilitated by by this illness, um, and they quite obviously are. They they. They, they obviously suffer okay whatever they're feeling some real symptoms whatever those symptoms might be uh but what's fascinating about it is how deeply associated whatever their illness is with this core belief that it's mobile phones causing the problem and, and we're, we're we're as certain as pretty much anything can be that it's not mobile phones causing this problem and uh, there are lots of good reasons why we can be certain about that uh, uh first of all there's no known mechanism by, by which this can happen. The power, the actual energy coming out of a mobile phone is minuscule, absolutely minuscule. So how can this affect you in a in a in, a, in such a profound way? And, and secondly, people have done experiments, you know, 50 or 60 experiments where they've exposed people to uh, mobile phone radiation, Wi-Fi or whatever, uh, and then asked people to record their symptoms but obviously in a scientific way, not telling people whether the device is on or off, okay? Uh, so can, do people experience different things when they don't know whether they're being exposed? And the experiment showed, no, they can't, okay? So whatever those symptoms are, uh, no doubt real, they're not caused by mobile devices. But the anger that um, someone like me is faced with, if I say this, is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. This, this, this need to believe that um, uh, this is the cause of whatever's ailing them in their life uh, is, is like nothing I've, I've seen. So I, I've given talks and on different matters, but people have come along to, to harangue me and tell me how evil I am for not believing them, not believing who they are, you know, quit, you know undermining their identity uh, as an electromagnetic sufferer. And, um, and of course, it's not just this, there are people with chronic Lyme disease, with uh, multiple chemical sensitivities, um, you know, and dare I say, uh, for risk of causing an avalanche, maybe even CFS, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome. We, we don't really know what causes that, but... Um, <laughs> I'm afraid but, now, Andy. <laughs> yeah, we're afraid. I've done it now. Um, uh, but we, we don't know what causes that. I wrote a piece a few years ago for Counterpunch on chronic fatigue syndrome. My yeah, piece did yeah. not say it wasn't real. My no. piece did not say that people were insane or crazy, nothing of the sort. Yeah. When I interviewed Simon Wesley, quoted him in my piece, and Simon Wesley, who's president of the Royal Society of Medicine. Yes, that's right. And he has done extremely deep work on this historically and has left to 
kinder yeah. fields of PTSD because the harassment he received resulted in his having to have his mail x-rayed. He received all sorts of threats for years yeah. over his simply stating that GETM CBT therapies are effective in treating this. The response was, we're not crazy. Yeah. And yeah. it's one thing to say that an, an illness or its symptoms don't exist, which is not what I or what Simon or I've not seen researchers of any thread say this. It's another thing to say, and these are reasons to do more investigations into this illness, that psychosomatic illness, it has grounds. Let's just put it that way. There are reasons to believe that psychosomatic illness is a yeah. thing. Does this mean that you're not really sick? Yeah. Does it mean you're crazy? No. And let's just throw out the word crazy from the discussion. We're not bringing it in. They are. So when yeah, you said CFS, yeah. I was going to bring it up as well. But I'm a bit trepidatious because that piece I wrote for <laughs> Counterpunch was unceremoniously. And I mean, uh, my editors did not even bother to tell me they pulled it. There was nothing scandalous about Good it. Grief. And it, it's shocking yeah. to me that one, researchers cannot discuss this without having death threats. And we know this about other fields recently. Yeah. And, and secondly, the fact that if you do work on it, there's a lobby to push how you work on it and the organizations and how they represent it towards a certain end. Meaning, I'll give you some quotes here because this is phenomenal. Uh, what people say, you just Google Simon Wesley's name and you get, but here's one, yeah, it's yeah. called how bad science misled CFS patients. If your doctor diagnoses you with chronic fatigue syndrome, you'll probably get two pieces of advice. Go to a psychotherapist and get some exercise. So this is true. Some people do have this happen. And they said, after all, that's what researchers concluded yeah. in a 2011 study published in the prestigious medical journal Lancet, along with later analysis. Problem is the study was bad science. Under court order, the study's authors for the first time released the raw data this month. Now they're referring here to, as you know, yeah. the, the study that Simon was involved with as well. And it was, can you explain that to our listeners, what happened there? Because this is to me phenomenal because I'll begin with the caveat that no study is perfect. Well, that's exactly what I was gonna say. Uh, uh, there's a difference between bad science and imperfect uh, methodologies in, in studies, uh, or even uh, conclusions that aren't fully justified. Mistakes are made, uh, <clears throat> experiments are not perfectly controlled. There's all sorts of things in, in ways a, a medical study can be less than perfect. No study is perfect. Um, so the fact that Wesley's research can be criticized is exactly what science is okay uh you go in there and you critically appraise it and you know i understand there were there were genuine issues in the in in the um study um what this is turned into though is as you say is a hate campaign um that that it's not just imperfect science it's somehow corrupt science um which is which is incredible what was i going to say about it it was um uh, I forgot what I was going to say, <laughs> Julia. It's um, uh, yeah. Going back to you know, I, I for, for one, I'm very open-minded about this. I'm, I'm, I'd be quite happy to accept that this is this is not psychosomatic actually for CFS. That, that it's a post-viral thing. It could well be. Um, that we're seeing we're seeing 
similar things arise with COVID at the moment, aren't we? I've, I've got good friends who've been knocked absolutely bloody sideways by this disease six months later. And, um, you know, viruses can have these effects. And maybe, you know, it's, it's very plausible that there's something in the environment that triggers this sort of um, uh, response in people. But we don't get to the bottom of that unless we have open scientific study of what's going on. And for any sort of illness, having some sort of you know, uh, counselling about your illness is absolutely fine, even if it is um, caused by a virus. You can think about your illness in different ways. That's perfectly valid. It's not going to cure you, perhaps. Uh, well, it's not going to cure you, but it might increase your ability to cope with life a few notches, which is fantastic. OK. Um, and... You know, that, that's honest research. And, and for this research group to be so vilified is just shocking, absolutely shocking. Uh, uh, and um, undoubtedly, we're going to get lots of interesting emails as a result of this now. When I use the word psychosomatic, there are two meanings of psychosomatic. And that's also important, I think, yeah, to address yeah. <laughs> that psychosomatic can mean an illness that is caused by a mental factor, but also aggravated by. That's why I include yes. the yeah. term psychosomatic, because I think most any illness has a psychosomatic valence to it in as much as if someone's suffering from something, even a cancer, yes. not yeah, having true. certain emotional and social support systems will cause psychic trauma which can make that healing process harder and this has been proven in study after study we see that having support systems actually makes the healing from somatic illness better yeah. okay so psychosomatic, psychosomatic does not just mean and i think it it should rarely mean caused uniquely by psychological issues you're absolutely right yeah uh and i i think that's what's um what was so fascinating about electrosensitivity is because of that. It's almost certain that there is something going on in people's lives. Um, and, and it could well be just, uh, I think what's been pointed out, a lot of people who suffer of it are quite high-powered people. Okay, The person who came to this talk in Birmingham and harangued me was a high-powered person, Okay, uh, uh, serious jobs. And uh, there's a few people like this I can think of. And... Um, these are this are stressful. How you know you're running a family, you're running a business, perhaps. Uh, you know you've got kids. Life is exhausting. Okay, for most of us. Um, and um, how we interpret that, especially if we get run down by a virus or something, is is pretty important. Uh, and and it's been suggested a lot of things like electrosensitivity are a massive misinterpretation about how we feel in life and our health you know that we have to locate that the meaning of the illnesses that we have to some other factor other than our own life and beliefs and identity the language of neoliberalism is wrapped up not only in medicine it's wrapped up in the way we do economy it's wrapped up in the sense of my same friend in brighton by the way who was very upset when i mentioned steiner rents out her house every time she leaves town. And I said, why don't you just put it on couch surfing and share with people? And she yeah. said, well, I'm poor. And I said, you own a house in Brighton. You are not <laughs> poor. This is it. We've got such well, fucked up ideals about what poverty means yeah, that now yeah. everyone's sick. Our identity is surrounding our sickness, getting back to identity politics. I think a lot of what we've discussed from homeopathy to Steiner to illness, 
is about the way we identify ourselves uniquely through an illness. No offense to people yeah, who are yeah. really struggling with these illnesses or with others. I'm not downgrading that struggle, but is it healthy for us to identify uniquely through these valences? Well, so absolutely. I think one of the fascinating things I've learned over these years writing about it is about how how we conceptualize our health, okay? Uh, as you say, that individ individualistic view of health, our health is located purely within ourselves. Our health doesn't exist within our family and society, for example. It, it, it is an identity and all the therapists are telling people all the time that you can achieve 100% health, okay? So by doing the right things, exercising the right way, eating the right things, chanting and meditating in the right way you can be and taking the right vitamin pills of course because they've got to sell something uh you can be 100 healthy and that's not how health works okay health is health is something that is located within our relationships a lot of the time and we trade in health so for example when i became a parent i knew that was going to be exhausting i was going to submit myself to you know, my wife more, obviously, risk and danger and years of sleeplessness and exhaustion. And you make that trade for having a family, okay? You could be even a young person. You could say, I, I want to go play rugby, okay? You're trading quite literally your physical well-being for the enjoyment of um, playing a sport. And that could be cycling or anything. It's Health is something that doesn't have to be 100% in you to have a fulfilling life. It's your health is something that um, you, you can uh, locate within the, the broader relationships you have rather than just your individual self. Now, of course, that's not to mean that we're not subject to disease and illnesses, but it's this morality of that, that the morality of illness is something that you have to, it's because of your personal responsibility for it the common theme of all these quacks is essentially is telling you that if you are not healthy it's essentially your fault and I had a devastating meeting with someone with breast cancer while I was talking in Devon once um, about this subject and it was a debate and she was on the opposite side of the debate to me and she was a young woman in her 30s with a family with breast cancer and she was convinced that uh, she could cure herself by um uh, drinking alkaline water because a quack had told her this okay and and uh, she was taking full responsibility for her health she said uh, and that involved running marathons and she was very fit she literally ran marathons so she had a lot of health but she was dying okay um, and her survival she was convinced was purely a matter of her commitment uh, to this if she failed it was in many ways a moral failing for her and of course she died a couple of months later absolute tragedy there's nothing that could be said or done here um that uh might have convinced her that um that's not how health works uh, it's uh yeah one of the more devastating encounters i've had while doing this to be honest charity salaries are huge yeah, and there was yeah. a big question of should they have six figures? Should over 10% of their income be spent in salaries? Should 50% of their income be spent in salaries? And these are questions that were never really answered because they're not regulated. So skip yeah. back to the UN. Guess who was working at the UN from all countries? The elite. The UN 
and other NGOs that work internationally, to me, are just a page turning of colonialism. It's instead of we've taken, you know, over the seat from, you know, de Gaulle, and we're going to redo Algiers and Casablanca in the modernist vision of architecture. Now, we're going to redo your country in the vision we have for family planning, sex work. So now, 16-year-olds who are sexually exploited in many countries have been embraced by the UN as being sex workers, I kid you not. So we are having this very strange postmodern application of university 101 courses being applied to children in India. And it's very surreal to me to see that the basis of human rights has been completely eviscerated while the plastering over of postmodern discourse and money coming in has that's the way to go. So similar to all these issues about scientific ethics, we have the whole ethics of what are institutions doing, basically tarmacking their way through legitimacy, regardless of evidence. Absolutely. I think the the role of charities and NGOs has been something that uh, has been quite shocking while I've been writing about this. Uh, in the UK, we, ha- we do have a so-called regulator of the uh, of charities here, the, the, the Charity Commission, but they're, they're a bit of a chocolate teapot, really. <clears throat> problems have been pointed out to them about various charities and the ones you know I was most involved with were the ones going out to Africa uh, again to to give homeopathy to people with HIV or malaria <clears throat> and um, uh, the, the, the charity commission's viewpoint essentially was it's not our job to say whether these treatments work or not okay um, uh, and we were sort of argue well it is you're there to make sure that these charities have a a public good that's why they get tax benefits is because they are they have aims and uh, activities end up in a public good and if they cannot demonstrate that public good they should not be getting those benefits Uh, but of course the charity commission has no interest in actually doing the work to to evaluate that so it all gets brushed under the carpet and we can see that you know across there we most recently in the uk of course with organizations in the the gender field like mermaids who uh, have been big advocates of um pushing puberty blockers onto children who uh, are expressing distress about their emerging sex and sexuality uh, and uh, again, the regulator is not going to do anything there, despite the fact that now it's becoming increasingly obvious that the, this charity is operating in a scientific and moral vacuum. Uh, who will stop them? I don't know. But it is a big problem, of course, with um, these organisations that because they've got the imprimatur of uh, that label of a charity or NGO have a have a pass. They have a free pass then to do as they please and carry on promoting whatever ideology, quackery, pseudoscience whatever it might be um wherever in the world uh so yeah that is um that is something as a society we have absolutely no grip on and it, it can be quite terrifying at times some what some of these organizations are doing well also mermaids received five hundred thousand pounds in in funding by the national lottery hence any kind of critique yeah. of of them would necessitate that the national lottery undertake stricter yeah. regulations for whom or which charities it funds, right? Well, it's all circular in the end, isn't it? They'll say, 
will only give money to registered charities, okay? Because uh, by being registered, that there you're automatically got, you know, a, a government stamp of approval that you are regulated and you you act in a way that has a public good. But when you actually look at how you come up with being a charity, there's no one actually checking or doing anything or making sure that's true. The the charity commission has a nominal role over that, but there's little evidence that they actually engage in ensuring outcomes uh, do benefit society. We're locked into this trap as a society now because no one wants to be the first person to say that we've made a big mistake here. Um, everyone has to keep up the pretense for as long as possible at the moment that there is no problem and that all the complaints are based on bigotry or ignorance or whatever it might be. So um, it will crack, I'm pretty sure. I think in the UK, it feels like we're getting close at the moment to, to a lot of these issues coming to a head. But uh, it's a question of who goes first now. <laughs> who's who's going to be the organisation or the regulator or the politician with enough clout to stand up and say there's a massive problem here? We're seeing that the right-wing press has been the best on this. The left, not so much. Yeah, and that's why it gets cast as a right-wing problem because the left ignore it. The only people speaking about it are right-wing, so it gets cast as a right-wing problem. Well, it's not, of course, okay? It's... Uh, it's um, it, it, it crosses those political divides. It's just that the left refuse to speak about it. I think it's really important that people see that what is being deconstructed here is not only science, good science and what's called bad science, which I call hokum. It's the idea that progressiveness is not the sole terrain of the left. If anything, I'd say the arguments the right is advancing against an internal gender identity is far more progressive. The left looks like, I compare it to the American TV show from the 70s, All in the Family's Archie Bunker character. But these are, you know, the left is showing its ugly head as being really regressive, sexist bro dudes, you know, even if some of them and many of them are young women. There's an entrenched yeah. sexism in the left that this debate is bringing out. It's shocking. Well, 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 absolutely. And indeed, it, you know, with all these things, I, I, I still think it's um, it's not a strict left right divide here. Of course, there are other axes to consider. There's, I think the authoritarian and liberal axis is, is, is an axis which is in some ways more powerful to explain some of these things that are going on at the moment. And, and what we're seeing at the moment is the left being dominated by sort of this new authoritarian identity ideology. Uh, which is which is quite terrifying, and, and I'm pretty sure we'll keep the left out of power for quite a while until this is resolved in one way or another. Um, so, uh, and this goes back. We we haven't mentioned why, why I came into skepticism was you know the, the Sokal hoax, you know, twenty odd years ago, where he exposed a lot of problems in academia that was infecting the left. Uh, and he, his books were a, a giant warning to the left, essentially, to say, unless you get your house in order over the way you think about the world and the ideologies, it's going to be a disaster for the left. And he was he could not be accused of being right wing in any way, of course, because he was, um, you know, he was a left wing activist in all sorts of um, uh, uh, areas. Uh, and, and in many ways, Sokal got it wrong because he didn't anticipate quite enough how bad it was going to get. Uh, I think he didn't anticipate, and no one did, 
he thought this would remain in the humanities department, a lot of this thinking. And what we've seen it is pretty much, in fact, a lot of medicine and psychiatry and biology and so on. Um, he was a physicist, so Carl, and I think in the past week or so, I've seen this thinking infect astrophysics and cosmology, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, and I want to write about that quite soon because it's quite extraordinary. It's, um, it's uh, the writing that maybe Julia Kristeva or Luce Irigare were writing when they were abusing Einstein's relativity or whatever in, uh, you know, 25 years ago, this sort of fantasy science writing that they were calling profound postmodernist thought. We're now seeing that being written actually in physics, you know, it's crossed over, which I find as frightening as hell. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Sokal did not go for, far enough. He should have, well, I don't think he could have done, but his warnings were just the beginning, really, that the academy is being corrupted by a style of thought which denies our ability to think objectively about the world and use evidence and reason to solve problems, whether that be in health or in climate or, or whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's somewhat terrifying. Uh, if I stop and think about it, it I, I, I get quite depressed. I, I see where you're coming from because, you know, I wrote Sokal about eight years ago after I started getting in, involved in this debate over internal identities. And I said, I owe you an apology. When you first wrote your paper, I was a student at NYU. I thought it was yeah. a bit unfair. I thought it was a bit hyperbolic. It wasn't hyperbolic enough because here we yeah. are. He had no idea. I had to fill him no. in on the gender identity debate. He was yeah. he, he was taken aback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's uh, gone a lot farther and faster than I think anyone quite realized what would happen, uh, which is why I'm talking about it right now, too late. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, it's um, needs to be done. Well, you can form your own church of of post postmodern identities, <laughs> and do come up with your own e meter for reading how much of the internal identity has left to be cleansed. Exactly, exactly. I'm <laughs> sure that will come. I'm quite sure it will come. <laughs> well, tell us, lastly, can you fill us in about the Saatchi bill? I find this quite interesting. Ah, it's about yeah, accountability. That was, yeah, that was a bizarre thing. It was, um, okay, so a bit of UK politics in, in, in the way our laws are made. You know, Parliament makes our laws and the government sets the agenda about what laws that can be made. But they do give room on the um, timetable of Parliament for individual members of Parliament to come up with their own laws, essentially, and propose them to the rest of the House and um, see if they get through. And most of the time they don't because uh, you need a lot of support to get a, a law through and a lot of time to do it. But occasionally someone in the, either in the House of Commons or in the House of Laws will come up with their own idea for a law and it will get government approval and it can become law and Lord Saatchi who sits in the House of Lords the uh, the uh, advertising mogul uh, he, unfortunately his wife died and she died of cancer and I think it caused him a lot of distress that uh, modern medicine was not able to do anything to save her they're obviously uh, well, by the sound of it very deeply in love it's a shocking thing but Lord Saatchi decided that the way to um, uh, solve this problem was to uh, encourage, um, well, to, to prevent patients suing their doctors if an innovative medical treatment went wrong, okay? 
Um, um, so, which was is quite profound. It, essentially, giving a license to anyone any, in the medical profession to come up with any crazy concoction, try it on you, and if it causes dreadful pain or even death, you can't sue. Okay, and that's what he was proposing. And the, the idea was that this would create more innovation. And of course, it's it was completely ignorant of the the world of medical ethics and. Uh, how innovation actually works through careful scientific study and experimentation and so on under you know all the proper ethical guidelines and it was going to put a steamroller through that and I was listening to Lord Sachi on the you know talk about his bill and he was completely misrepresenting his own bill to parliament I think for whatever reason and I don't know why because a bill shaped like that was unlikely to get through he was presenting it as uh, um, uh, not a a, a medical negligence reduction bill, but this innovation bill that whatever was inside this bill was going to cure cancer. And people were nodding it through. They were saying, yes, this sounds great, Lord Sachi. Whatever's inside there will nod it through without actually reading it. And so myself and Alan Hennis, a longtime old sceptical friend who is married to Maria McLaughlin, who uh, was the woman at Hyde Park who got uh, unfortunately attacked by... Um, those trans activists a few years ago, um, uh, we set up together the Stop the Sashi Bill to try and raise some awareness about what was going on. And it was, yeah, just one of those extraordinary things about you suddenly had to get into the mindset of how Parliament worked and where you could pull levers and who you could influence and what you could do. And we, we quickly got together a, a, a cabal, if you like, of lawyers and journalists and um, uh, other activists, you know, about half a dozen or more of us to, to try and do this. And we, we found some friendly faces inside government, uh, a minister who uh, understood the, the risks and problems here, but uh, uh, some personal risk to herself because Lord Sachi is quite an influence, influential Tory. And so by doing this, you were going to piss him off. Okay. Um, um, but we succeeded. Uh, we managed to convince various people that this was a bill that needed gutting. Um, and so it, it passed, but in a form that was completely meaningless in the end. It achieved absolutely nothing and had no effect, which was what we wanted to do. But um, just, just it, it, so the Stop the Sashi bill was just a, uh, a piece of work which was I don't know, just a, a typical bit of sceptical activism that I think there probably ought to be more of, really, a focused idea, getting the right people together, understanding the science, understanding the law, understanding the social impact, and trying to work out what to do. And the one thing I've learned in activism here is you don't win by being right. No one wins by being right. And I think a lot of people in the gender identity uh, politics movement are realising this now. You win by being the biggest pain in the ass. Okay, uh, you have to create more problems for the authorities than the opposition are. Okay, uh, and that's how you win. Uh, and we can see that now. I think in a lot of the uh, gender identity debates, you have to have more judicial reviews. You have to go to court more often. You have to put more pressure on the regulators. Uh, and it helps enormously if you're correct, but um, uh, that is insufficient. Being correct and having the right science behind you will never win you any battles whatsoever you have to be a giant pain in order to get anything done uh, and so doing that was was a big lesson in, in, in that to be honest why do you think though a country like the uk which doesn't have the first amendment as the united states 
has been more successful in pushing back on gender identity, for instance, among other things, but certainly gender identity than the US and Canada. Because that is notable to me as an American who's watching this unfold. I'm thinking, wow, the country with the First Amendment is doing a worse job. Yeah, um, yeah, lots of people have written about this uh, with their own ideas. Um, it is fascinating. Uh, a lot of it goes back to is a lot of people make the mistake that, that British and American politics are similar. And of course, they're, they're quite different. Uh, um, uh, the, the, the themes and um, ideas and the beliefs that are embedded within each side's politics are quite different. Um, and, and in particular, I think uh, in Britain, you know, class is still important, probably uh, and we're having that debate internally at the moment whether class and race are more important uh, dimensions about understanding injustice in society. Uh, whereas in America, I'd say it's much more geared towards the various identities of people, however they're constructed, rather than economic class. I, I think in the UK as well, UK was pretty progressive here. Okay, we we sorted out, started to think about these problems quite a while ago, and we. One of the first countries in the world, I believe, to introduce specific protections for people with trans identities so that, you know, you can't sack someone in the UK if uh, if they declare that they have you know, the status of gender reassignment, which um, we, we were the first countries to do that. And in, in equality, you know, so in equality legislation, that is already there. Uh, and also one of the first countries as well to sort of give some sort of recognition to people legally to, to, to deem them to be the, the sex that they wish to be in, in law, whether that's a good or a bad thing. So we, we already start from a foundation where there are pretty good rights and protections for people uh, with, with a trans identity. Um, uh, but also, you know, we, we, you know, hats off to what was most amazing here was, although I was giving up on the skeptics movement for forever thinking about this idea, the, the British women were, and feminists and discussion groups like Mumsnet and all these things were right on it and with ruthless precision. Okay, just amazing insight from everyone from academic philosophers to you know uh, mums, you know, typing up on Mumsnet who picking apart this in in quite incredible detail uh, in blogs and in podcasts and all these sorts of things and on Twitter, uh, which enabled, um, as I said, the activism to come together to, to create the big pain in the neck you need to actually make something be done. So, so why that is, yeah, there's people who've thought about it more than me, but um, uh, uh, the root of it is I think that Britain is is not the same as the states for in all sorts of dimensions and so we started from a very different position and I think we've been quite lucky here yeah yeah it, it is interesting I think I think it's just not legal I think there's a cultural thing here too as well I think uh, um, dare I say in the US as well I think society is run by a lot more fear than in in, in the um, in the UK and by that I mean people need to fit in and conform okay in in quite a few ways quite simply if you if your boss doesn't like you anymore and sacks you because he can be sacked very easily you lose your health care you're in quite a lot of trouble all the time and that you know we still have some safety net in the UK that we can 
live without being completely reliant on um, uh, an employer or, or, or something like that. Um, so that there is a bit of a safety net there, but also just I think you know the polarity of voices is maybe a little bit more tolerant here as well. Perhaps it's going in the wrong direction, um, but uh, yeah, we, we don't have um, what can I say the same dynamics in 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 discussion. Uh, uh, you know, we, we we're not a religious country. We um, we take the piss out of politics rather than take it seriously. Uh, there's various things like that that uh, I think help as well. There's more nuance in the UK in political analysis. In the US, it's again, we're back to the Chicago Cubs or the New York Yankees. I despair about what is happening in terms of science in general, because I'm interviewing in two days time, Mark Crispin Miller from NYU, who's been under assault by his colleagues for asking the question about scientific bases for mask mandates and other things. We're going after someone who's saying he'd like to see science. This is where we are. Absolutely. My constant theme here is uh, you've got to keep asking questions. You've got to keep asking for evidence about everything all the time, because if you don't, then something bad is going to happen. Some idea is going to get lodged into an institution or society or an individual, which is going to harm people. And it's only by constantly saying, why do we believe that? Why do we think that? Why are we doing this? What, what what do we know about this and what evidence do we have? If we're not asking that, well, we're setting ourselves up from all sorts of calamity and disaster. And um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, that's what I would say to a lot of the old people I used to consider as friends in a sceptical community before I became this appalling bigot, is you, you need to keep doing that. Just, just keep asking questions, have the discussions, even though they're uncomfortable, even though they're, they make... They, they hurt and they might not seem compassionate or all these. I wasn't compassionate to electrosensitives, but we have to ask those questions. Otherwise, how are we ever going to help people? You know, I'm not compassionate to, to homeopaths uh, when they're doing things that might kill people. But unless we confront these bad ideas, uh, we, you know, people are going to get hurt. And the same with gender identity. We have to understand the basis on which this is built and what are the assumptions here and what's true and what isn't true and what do words actually mean when you say them unless we're constantly grappling with that again people's lives are going to be destroyed or ruined or or, or whatever so um that's my message to skepticism what why aren't we doing that where did it all go wrong when did we start thinking that asking questions or saying the word discuss was offensive why is saying the word discuss taboo now? Okay, and uh, that that's a terrifying idea that seems to get lodged into the head of so many people.
Thank you.